Welcome to the Equine Connection Podcast, where health, nutrition, and love of the horse come together. This podcast is brought to you by Tribute Superior Equine Nutrition. I'm your new co-host, Kim Brown, along with equine nutritionist, Dr. Nicole Rambo. Hello, Kim, and welcome. We're so glad to have you on the podcast with us. I am very excited you're here, and I think our listeners are going to love to get you to know you as well. Can you give us the cliff notes of your background so everybody knows who they're listening to? Oh, my goodness, yes. Well, let's see. I started out in 1980, so yes, I'm, I'm one of those senior horses out there in the, in the paddock, but I still get out and do things. Um, I started at the Blood Horse Weekly Thoroughbred Magazine. And after about 15 years, I started something that uh, was a passion project for me that I think a lot of your listeners may recognize. It was called The Horse and the Horse.com. Ah, and I ran that. I'm familiar. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it was a, a love for many of us who we really wanted to know the back end of the health of the horse. And there was really no place uh, out there for us. So. Uh, after about 15 years, I'd been at the Blood Horse for almost 30 years. I decided to retire from uh, journalism. I uh, went to work at a nutrition company because I love nutrition, which I was, that's why I'm so happy to be here with Tribute and, and you, Dr. Rambo, because this, I'm going to learn so much on this. And as, as a horse owner, this is going to help me. So it's, it's a little bit of a cheat on the side because it's like, oh, I can go do this for business and for my own education. And then for the last, oh, 10 years or so, I have worked with the Equine Network as um, the group publisher for, I know it sounds a little weird, but we purchased the horse in my company um, or the company I worked for. And so I ran the Equine Veterinary Magazine called Equi Management. And then I was the group publisher over Equus, Equi Management, the horse, and stable management. Yes, you come to us with a wealth of experience and again, also a horse owner. So I'm very excited to work together. And today we kind of tackle a really common topic. So lead us into it. Well, and holsters have been something since I was way back in my early days when they were first realizing that ulcers affected horses. Because, you know, in the thoroughbred industry, anything that affects a horse's health can diminish their performance. And so ulcers were a big deal. But I guess before we discuss some of the newer research on equine ulcers, which I'm really excited to hear, let's make sure we're all on the same page with understanding equine gastric ulcers, because that's the ones most of us think of when we think of ulcers in horses. So Dr. Rambo, can you kind of describe to us, the horse owner, the different types of gastric ulcers that affect horses and what parts of the stomach that they affect? Absolutely. And, and good call out today. We're only talking about the stomach, gastric, stomach, no other parts of the horse's digestive tract, <laughs> even though we know stuff can go wrong in all Absolutely. the different places. So we think about the actual makeup of the stomach itself. You have two portions. You have the glandular portion of the stomach. That's the bottom part. It has this thick mucosal layer that's protecting it from specifically acid. And it's the part of the stomach that secretes all the stuff. It secretes acid itself, the mucus and the bicarb layer. There's some hormones that control things like gastric emptying and stomach motility. That all happens in this bottom portion of the stomach, the glandular portion. The top part of the stomach 
the non-glandular or squamous part of the stomach is different in its makeup. It's just stratified epithelial cells. It doesn't have that mucus layer of protection. And if you look at kind of diagrams that you might see in an article, if you Google it, top part of the stomach is this light tan color. The bottom is this darker pinkish red color. And there's a very distinct demarcation between the two. It's called right. the Margot Placatus. And it was so interesting. I've, of course, seen the different pictures. They've been in textbooks in class. And then the first time I had one of my own horses scoped. Um, by the way, if you're new to the podcast, the running joke is like, if there's a thing, one of my horses has probably had it over the years, <laughs> but it really does look exactly like that. So in the stomach, there's this very distinct change from that non-protected squamous part of the stomach to the glandular bottom portion of the stomach. When we think about ulcers, the early ulcer research just was equine gastric ulcer syndrome. Ulcers in any part of the stomach were put into this one big lump. Kind of one of those things that we've been working towards in some of the newer research has really started to define the differences between ulcers that happen in the bottom part of the stomach, the glandular region, and the top part of the stomach, that squamous region. So now we distinctly talk about equine squamous disease, equine glandular disease. So top and bottom. Most of that early research was really just focused on squamous disease. So as we think about the technology, it wasn't until the late 80s that a gastroscope for a horse even existed. Absolutely. And certainly, like, they were using human ones that weren't quite long enough to get in the bottom of the stomach. And it's amazing how far that technology has come. But with that, kind of we're looking at some differences in the types of ulcers, what they're caused by, and how we treat them. So ulcers in the top part of the stomach primarily a function of acid or volatile fatty acids. Those are actually a byproduct of digestion. So if we put a lot of sugary stuff in the horse's stomach, these volatile fatty acids are created, which exacerbate the impact of acid. But acid splashes up on the top part of the stomach, we get ulcers. That's the traditional type of ulcers that we're thinking about. In the glandular portion of the stomach, it's a little bit different because the glandular portion of the stomach actually secretes the acid. It has a mechanism in place to protect it. So this isn't a pH function. It's a breakdown in the actual barrier that's supposed to protect the bottom part of the stomach. And really, the some of the new research, which we'll talk about more, is kind of understand the underlying physiology of the difference in these ulcers. Because an ulcer in the bottom part of the stomach is not typically like that bleeding ulcer we think of as in the squamous stomach. It's more an inflammatory response, and they tend to be things that are like a little bit raised, inflamed, different types of ulcers. I will say, a horse doesn't like ulcers, whether it's in the top or the bottom <laughs> part of the stomach. Okay, Bad thing either way, but we're starting to understand the differences between our types of ulcers. Well, and as, as a horse owner myself, and between my daughter and I, we, we share a property with her family and mine. And we have, we're down to only 11 equids right now. And so I, I say equids because we have donkeys, mules, mini mules, <laughs> got a quarter horses, got Tennessee walking horse. We got a little bit of everything. And it's so fun to kind of see the differences in the personality and how they affect. So, but I, you know, as a horse owner, you know, myself and some of our listeners might think, 
hey, I've got this horse. It's so easy going. It doesn't have any stress. So why should I worry about ulcers? Oh, good question. All right. I'm going to hit you real quick with some stats. All of this research, originally the bulk of the research was squamous disease. And a lot of it, kind of like you mentioned, a lot of that funding originally came from different organizations supporting racing industry, both thoroughbreds and standard breds. So we've got a lot of data about those critters. So very quickly, in thoroughbreds, equine squamous disease, those ulcers in the top part of the stomach, anywhere from 37 to 52% of thoroughbreds not in work and up to 100% of thoroughbreds in work. Depends on the study you look at. Standard breads, similar numbers not in work, anywhere from 72 to 88% of standard breads in training have squamous ulcers. Interestingly, there's a little bit different numbers when you look at the trotters versus the pacers, which is kind of one of those cool things. Thinking about horses who don't specifically do racing. So there's been some work in endurance horses. They've also looked at them kind of a baseline. About 48% of those horses had ulcers in the squamous region, up to 93% in training. And if you're saying like, I don't race things, well, a couple other studies, one found that 79% of Western pleasure horses had ulcers. 51% of Italian donkeys. That would be closer to some of the things you have in your backyard. And then one that I found really interesting, there was a study in the United Kingdom, post-mortem. Okay, so this is after these horses had passed. 61% of feral horses, not domesticated horses, they weren't doing a job. They had squamous ulceration. Wow. Right. And then equine glandular gastric disease, so those ulcers on the bottom part of the stomach, the numbers look a little bit different. In thoroughbreds that are in work, anywhere from 25 to 65% of those horses in the cohort studies had glandular ulcers. Uh, Another study looked at a mix of thoroughbred and standard bred race horses. 47% of those had glandular ulcers. Looking at other sports, there was one study that looked at Canadian show jumpers which had 72% of those horses, glandular ulcers. Uh, There was a study that looked at quarter horses, 59%. I know that you may have one or two quarter horses, (laughs) right? Yep. And then again, looking at that post-mortem population, again, in the UK, 71% of domesticated horses in that cohort group and 30% of feral ponies. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So I would say sometimes... When we look at these studies, people try to draw some conclusions about like breed effects and things like that. So thoroughbreds and standard breds, much higher risk of squamous disease. Is it that the individual breed is at higher risk or is it based on their job, they're exposed to the risk factors more than horses who might do other things? And we'll talk about those risk factors as part of management. And I've seen some things where people have drawn conclusions about glandular disease that warm bloods are at greater risk. Well, you know, that research came from countries where warm bloods make up the bulk of the horse population. So is it that warm bloods are at greater risk or is it just reflective of the type of horses they studied? I don't think we can answer that question, but to your basic fundamental question, as a horse owner, why should I care? It doesn't matter what breed you have. All horses are at risk of ulcers. And sometimes those horses who literally do nothing, they have the perfect life, free choice pasture, they get a little ration balance, or they don't even do a job. We scope them and they have ulcers. 
So it's, it's complicated. And I think it's an issue that every horse owner at least has to have on their radar. And I hope for them that they don't experience that with their horse, but it's absolutely does not matter what breed, what discipline your horse is at risk of ulcers at some point in its life. Wow. Okay. So thank you for sharing that because that was really interesting. So what we've just learned is just about any horse could have ulcers. And so we're assuming that the more stress situations, because you mentioned the race horses, but even at pasture that they can have them. But I have to, one thing I have to add, you talked about the feral ponies. I think ponies are what give horse owners ulcers. I'm just saying. I mean, Fair. that's just, all of us that have ponies or donkeys, they, they are like escape artists. And they just, every time you're out and you're like, well, are they going to be there and take everybody with them? So let's go back to diagnosis. So your horse, maybe we'll talk about a, a few clinical signs maybe that might think about it, but how are they actually diagnosed? You, you mentioned, you know, the changes in technologies over the years since the 80s. So what clinical signs might make me as an owner think that, oh gosh, maybe I ought to talk to my vet about this? Yes. Okay. So unfortunately, they're super nonspecific. And if we look at some of the things that may be a result of ulcers, uh, colic, weight loss or poor body condition score, diarrhea, reduced appetite, behavioral changes, mm -hmm. reduced performance, teeth grinding, girthiness, all of these things have been attributed to ulcer risk. It's, it is interesting when we actually look at the data as we start to take these apart. You know, some of them, for example, diarrhea. A couple of studies found a link. Other studies found no link between ulcers and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. One interesting one, girthiness. That's like the classic, like, ah, my stomach's, my horse's stomach hurts. They must have ulcers because they're acting girthy. That one, data has not supported that horse's giving you that kind of nasty behavior when you yeah. do their girth or cinch was related to ulcers at all. It's, you know, it, all of these are vague things, but that doesn't mean that they're not things we might not pick up on, discuss with our vet, especially if it's a recent change. And then we think about actual diagnosis. The only way in a clinical setting to actually fully diagnose ulcers is using that technology, a gastroscope, where they're able to go into the stomach and actually visualize what it looks like. So briefly, that procedure, there'll be a, path, a fasting period that the horse will undergo because we have to let the stomach empty out. One thing that's kind of interesting, we know the bulk of the feed when we give a meal to a horse leaves the stomach in about 20 minutes, and yet you generally, it, procedures vary, but about an overnight fasting, so roughly 12 hours, your vet will okay. give you specifics, you know, on how long you need to fast to fully empty the horse's stomach. They're lightly sedated, and then they actually run a very long, flexible tube with a camera down, and they're able, honestly, it's kind of like watching someone play a video game. They're able to turn it, they can add a little air to create more space, they can, you know, spray a little water to wash any residual feed particles off the wall of the stomach and actually get in there and fully visualize what things look like. There is, of course, you know, should I have my horse scope? Should I treat on behavior? I think that's a complicated discussion. But ultimately, if we're looking for a true diagnosis, we have to actually go in and visualize the horse's stomach. There are some interesting things that aren't really clinically relevant, um, but some research that has looked at other markers of ulcers. 
that I can see maybe being useful in a research setting, for example. So there's some newer work that actually has found that horses with ulcers have changes in the composition of the protein in their saliva. So, you know, I'm interested in that from a research standpoint because it allows you to screen horses. But if I'm thinking about it as a horse owner, I won't know how to treat the ulcers, which I think we'll cover in our next episode a little bit more without specifically knowing where they are in the stomach. Well, gosh, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because, you know, anything that you can do that, uh, that leads us to a quicker diagnosis of when our horses hurt is always good for us or how to prevent it. So do you have any other late recent research that we could uh, hear a little bit more about? Because I'm really curious about this. I think we could talk about this forever, Kim. There's <laughs> probably so much information out there. So I would say kind of some of the current publications have a few different focuses. One we've touched on a little bit. What is the difference both in risk factors and treatment for horses with equine squamous gastric disease versus equine glandular gastric disease? Are those ulcers in the bottom part of the stomach, which is protected from acid, or is it the function of acid splashing up on the sides of the stomach? So what's different about those? The treatments are different. Also, the risk factors are different. So as they've started to pull this apart, I think it's really interesting. Squamous disease is obviously what we've mainly focused on because it was easiest to visualize. That's what the bulk of our research has covered. Mostly a management issue. And we can talk about in the next episode some of the feeding management. So there are a number of things, forage availability, meal size, et cetera, that are very strong risk factors for squamous disease. What they're finding is glandular disease, you know, ultimately is not a nutritional issue. Now, obviously, we want to feed the horse a diet that is friendly to their stomach regardless. Right. Glandular disease seems linked much more to stress. So they're really looking at how can we identify different risk factors for both of those different diseases. Some of them are really interesting. So like we said, nutrition those typical nutrition factors, we'll talk about them a bunch next week when we think right. about prevention, very much implica implicated in squamous disease. You know, gastric disease really hasn't found that relationship other than one study actually found that alfalfa, which we think of as like our forage that is gold standard for yeah. ulcers, increased the risk of glandular disease. What? Right. Now, we're not going to read too much into one study, but science is complicated sometimes. Exercise, that's a really interesting thing they've looked at more recently. So squamous disease, the time you spend riding your horse per week. So like how much time you actually spend in the saddle working your horses, that increases the risk of squamous disease increases. Whereas glandular disease really wasn't related to the length of work or even the intensity. In both cases, intensity didn't matter. Hmm. But the number of days that your horse is working per week. So as horses worked more than five days per week, the likelihood that they had glandular disease increased significantly, suggesting those rest days were really, really important in mitigating risk in glandular disease. And then there's been some interesting work looking at, you know, NSAIDs. So our bute, our banamine, those things that immediately we go, ah, bad for the stomach. And, and they certainly are. Um, but, you know, looking at how much and how long do you need to feed an NSAID to increase your risk of developing ulcers? So 
absolutely some of the early models you very significantly can cause ulceration but they were used at really really high doses maybe not be clinically relevant so i think there's some really interesting research going on there and of course there are things like new newer formulations so a lot of the drugs we've had have been on the market for a very long time and as of course we learn more about the underlying mechanism causing the different types of ulcers naturally there's more work into those drugs things like dosing protocols um you know i recently actually had to treat a horse for ulcers yay me happens oh, to everybody. um but you know today there's a lot of discussion about fasting horses to increase bioavailability of omeprazole which we can talk a little bit more about the drugs next week and it kind of seems counterintuitive Ideally, you're going to have forage in front of those horses 24-7. We know that's one of the ulcer risk factors, and yet the drug works better on a fasted stomach. So lots of really cool things coming from all across the world, these researchers who are dedicating time and resources to learning more about ulcers, which ultimately helps us as the horse owner do our best to support our equine partners. Wow. Okay. So um, again, this is why I love nutrition. There's always nuances and new things that we can learn to do a better job of taking care of our horses. Can you maybe just give us a a quick, maybe a few management tips that might deal with us trying to help our horses not have ulcers? (laughs) One, I will say, don't beat yourself up. Horses get ulcers, even (laughs) if you do it perfectly. And we will talk a ton more about this next week. But as a little sneak peek, the biggest things would be forage availability. Okay, so how much forage are we feeding them? How many hours per day do they not have access to forage? Those are absolutely risk factors, particularly for squamous disease. Thinking about keeping our concentrate meals as small as possible. Some horses need more than hay. They all need more than hay for nutrients, but some need additional calories as well. So we have a lot of cool tools now that we didn't back in the 80s. I I shudder to think some of the things that I fed horses growing up But, you know, our lower NSC or higher fat concentrates, they do a great job of providing those calories in a way that is more friendly for gastrointestinal health. And then mitigating stress. And and I think that's a tough discussion because ultimately, like, hey, horses stress themselves out. (laughs) Their life could be perfect and some of them would still experience stress. But then the stuff we do with them creates stress, riding, transportation, going to shows or trail rides. Thinking about how do we manage a horse in such a manner that we mitigate that stress to the best of our ability. And it's not always cookie cutter. You know, sometimes you would hear people say, well, if it has ulcers, put them outside 24-7 on pasture. Sure, but if your horse hates the bugs in the summer and he is not eating grass because he's pacing the fence desperate to come inside, well, that's maybe not the best management to reduce his stress. So ultimately, it's, it's complicated and nuanced, and we have to figure out what are the best set of circumstances for each of our individual horses to mitigate stress the best we can? Yeah, and talking about turning them out and saying, oh, it's best if they're just out there being semi-feral. I remember an early piece of research in the thoroughbred industry that they took like this idyllic thoroughbred broodmares. I mean, you're talking about 24-7, anything they want, great health care. And they had a very high percentage of ulcers simply because of herd dynamics is what they determined. So it's like, you know, we've all, we all got the red mare in the herd that can make anybody have ulcers. 
Absolutely. So it's complicated. However, if you tune in next week, we can actually talk a little bit more what some of the research has shown about things like herd dynamics and pasture and get a little bit more nitty gritty into what what can we do to help prevent ulcers with our horses. Yeah. And it, uh, do you have any final words on, I'm going to call it part one of this topic because I'm so excited about next uh, episode. Oh, final words. Um, ultimately, it's complicated and we are all doing our best. And I think it's incredibly exciting how much new research is out there. We've talked about ulcers before on this podcast and we're revisiting it because there's so much new stuff. So I'd expect this to be an evolving area in equine research and that I'm sure we will touch back on it again as we learn more because we're always doing the best we can with the information we have today. And we're hoping that we can iterate to better versions over time. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rambo, for for helping us understand a little better where ulcers come from and, and some of the things we can do. And again, we mentioned because this is such a big topic and ulcers affect so many horses we've learned. And because we as horse owners want to better understand what we can do to prevent ulcers. In our next episode of the Equine Connection podcast, Dr. Rambo and I will talk about some of the treatments and ways to prevent equine gastric ulcers. And you can find more information about equine ulcers on the Tribute website and through the link in the show notes. We want to shout out a big thanks to all of our listeners today from around the world. I was amazed at how many different places uh, you guys come to listen to this, but I do understand. I love this podcast. And if you have questions or suggestions, visit the Tribute Equine Nutrition's Facebook page or look for the link in the contact us in the show notes. And don't forget, you can go back and listen to many other equine health and nutrition topics on previous episodes of the Equine Connection podcast. Thanks so much, Kim.